This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. So our text from the school for this morning is going to be from the Blue Cliff Record, Hekigon Roku in Japanese. This is um, number 89 in the Blue Cliff Record. It's a dialogue between Yun Yan and Dao Wu. So Yun Yan asked Dao Wu, how does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, or Kanon, how does the Bodhisattva Guan Yin use those many hands and eyes. Dao Wu answered, it's like someone in the middle of the night reaching behind her head for a pillow. Yun Yan said, I understand. Dao Wu asked, well, how do you understand it? Yun Yan said, all over the body are hands and eyes. Dao Wu said, that is very well expressed, but it is only eight-tenths of the answer. Yun Yan said, well, how would you say it, elder brother? Dao Wu said, throughout the body are hands and eyes. End of case. So for, <clears throat> for the last um, couple of talks, as some of you know, We've been exploring the Bodhisattva vows, what it means to be a Bodhisattva, what it means to vow to liberate all beings. And as we study the precepts, the moral and ethical teachings in Buddhism and Zen, this vow, all of the vows that we make, are explored from different perspectives. Of course, from the literal perspective, you know, where it's exactly that, to save all beings, to do our best to open up, to help, and ultimately to provide the conditions so that beings can find the freedom that they're looking for. And then there's also the mind, sort of the mind-only perspective, which is, we've talked about how saving beings is something that is internal, that it's saving beings in terms of how we imprison with our biases, with our own uh, preconceptions and the way we limit people, the way we limit ourselves internally. And then ultimately, from the absolute perspective, seeing, of course, that there are no beings to save. Nothing to be done. And so this practice of stilling the mind, of reflecting on the nature of self, of our lives, in the beginning, it can feel like a very self-oriented practice, and it's been an accusation that many people have made against Buddhism, against meditation. It sounds so self-absorbed, what you're doing, right? Uh, but, you know, these vows that we've been exploring are this call to something much greater, something much greater than a self-absorbed kind of practice. 
It reminded me of a, <clears throat> a quote by Albert Schweitzer, who said, until we extend our compassion to all living beings, we will not find ourselves at peace. And so this practice, this living koan, this living question is always what we, how do we do that? Like, how do we save all beings? And the, the masters and all practitioners in this tradition since the time of the Buddha have asked this question, how best to use my time, to use the practice, to use this vow. Last week I spoke about the four vows, the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. And I said that Buddhism reminded people that Buddhism is not a thing. This great way that we're trying to attain is not a thing. It can't be attained in one way. It's always changing because that's its nature, just like all things. And this reality of this changing nature of all things is represented by this Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, or Kanon, or Avalokiteshvara. And so this reality is represented there in this dialogue between Yunyang and um, Dawu invokes this bodhisattva of compassion. What does the bodhisattva use her many hands and eyes for? So Kuan Yin or Kanon, I don't know if people have seen this. I was going to pull up a picture, but I didn't have time. But um, have seen this representation of Kuan Yin or Kanon with many arms kind of splayed out, uh, sometimes even in a, uh, with a thousand arms with many heads sometimes. And in and, and some of the representations of Kuan Yin, in each, in each hand is in a different implement, a different tool, so to speak. One story has it that after struggling to understand the needs of so many people, the Bodhisattva's head split into 11 pieces. And then Amitabha Buddha saw this and made her in those pieces into full heads. So 11 full heads. And then as she reached out to help, her arms also split into a thousand pieces and then were made into a thousand individual arms, each with a hand and in each hand an eye. This question that made this bodhisattva's head explode is really about how do I help? How do I help? How do we live? How should I use my time? And asking these questions ourselves, I'm sure some of us can relate, right? That feeling like our heads are going to explode. And so the many-armed canon Kuan Yin reminds us that the answer to these questions is always changing. It's to try to nail it down, to try to pin it down, is itself what kind of makes our head explode. Right? What should I do with my life? Like it needs to be one thing. How should I help? Like it has to be one way. So she really represents how to respond appropriately, given the circumstances, given the time, given the place, that it has to depend on circumstances, which is very different in a way from 
what we're encountering in this culture right now, isn't it? This strong pull we see this week with the decisions that are coming out of the Supreme Court, our institutions, how there's this pull into conservatism, working against pluralism, the idea that one book, one faith, one idea, one way of seeing the world is the solution. So I think it's important to see that much of what pulls people back into this conservatism, back into this orthodoxy, this way of relating, arises from fear. which we may see in our own selves, the pull back to something we can rely on. You know, this world is a pretty scary place. So pulling back to what is known or at least familiar is understandable to simplistic solutions. And yet it doesn't represent the reality of impermanence, of no self, and so as practitioners of the Buddha Dharma, we're always being called to examine what is it that we're doing? You know, the ideas, what ideas are we propagating? How are we using our lives? Are we living and acting out of fear? How, do we, how are we engaging with other people? All these are questions, and we should be asking ourselves these questions. You know, the Buddha himself really centered his teaching on questioning. One point he said, Just as a goldsmith tests gold by rubbing, cutting, and burning, so you should examine my words. Do not accept them just out of faith in me. And then he said, we should come to know for ourselves that when things are unwholesome or wrong or bad, then we should give them up. And when we come to know for ourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then we should accept them and practice them. It's very practical. This is why questioning is so important in practice. And throughout Zen history, teachers have always railed against a kind of sitting practice that reinforces stuckness. Teachers used to rail against what was called dead void sitting, sitting with a blank mind. Or just kind of blissing out into kind of feel-good states. Because when we're, if we, if we do that, and many people experience those kind of states of dullness. When you come out of those states and examine what happened, it's actually the body, the mind, feels dull, unresponsive. So it really comes back down, at least in Zen terms, to question, what is it? What is it? This aliveness that comes with questioning this is the basis of compassion. The nature of compassion. Compassion means, of course, to suffer with. Right? To suffer with. To come to know somebody, something, 
in order to help, we have to know what or who we're trying to help. Which is the very opposite, to my mind, of what some of these decisions coming out of the Supreme Court are doing. And coming to know somebody out of compassion is a messy process. You know, it's not a comfortable thing. It's not an easy thing. Anyone that hopes to be in relationship with somebody else knows that in order for a relationship to grow or become authentic, it really we have to we have to see and then drop all of the ideas or projections, our hopes, our wishes that we lay on top of other people, all the ideas that what we think somebody should be like or act like or what we should be like. So it's really this coming to know, uh, dropping the projections, working with what is in front of us, this very difficult process. This is the embodiment. This is the beginning the embodiment of compassion. And, and the same thing is true with our practice here in the Zendo or at home, you know, dropping all the, having the courage to drop all the ideas, all the fantasies that we have about the nature of practice or what we expect to get from the practice. I've, I've found in my own life, in my own practice, that, you know, these ideas, they usually just evaporate with time. The more we stick with it, the more reality just kind of works its way in, whether we like it or not. You know? So relationship, compassion, it's not a sterile process. It's not, it's not about standing on the sidelines from some bench up high and being what is compassionate. I think the nature of compassion is about adapting to change. We change, our strategies change, our ideas must change. And it's very difficult, like I said earlier, it's, not, it's very difficult not to fall into fixation. The Buddha warned very uh, often about how the mind becomes fixated on the way things should be. It's not that structures aren't helpful. Rules and ways of being aren't helpful. They are. I mean, how many people, for example, would sit a retreat by themselves without the outside structure, without the form of practice? That's why many of us come here on Sunday morning, including myself. Like, how many of us would actually sit, maintain a practice by ourselves without the support, without the structure of the community? But when these structures go unexamined, that's when they create the real potential for suffering. I was, um, I was reading an article in Political, Politico um, the other day about gun control, which is another obviously huge snake that we're wrestling with in this country. And this article was about gun control in the Constitution and about the debate about whether we should be viewing the Constitution from, you know, what's called an originalist perspective, that it's, we stay with the intention of the Founding Fathers, or whether we view it as a living document, you know, 
And the author of the article said, asks, should a 21st century society really interpret its constitution by the standards of 1787, an era before the introduction of semi-automatic weaponry, steam power, penicillin, automobiles, trains, electric lights, and indoor plumbing. And he goes on to say, the functional problem with originalism is that it requires a very, very firm grasp of history, a grasp that none of the nine justices and certainly few of their 20-something law clerks freshly minted from JD programs possess. So having a firm grasp of history, how many of us have that in our ways that we view ourselves and the world? And of course, this is, this is um, what we learn in practice is that we learn that uh, much of our suffering actually comes from repeating history, our own history, our own mistakes over and over again, the patterns over and over again. And even when we do see them, how difficult it is to not repeat them. And that's what this country is going through in these early centuries, right? repeating these patterns of suffering. And so in many ways, the structures that we impose on ourselves and others arise from distrust. Right, not trusting that others will make the right decision or the appropriate decision for themselves. And as I often say, a big part of our practice is learning to examine our minds and our bodies as we develop trust in ourselves. That there is a wisdom in our bodies and our minds. Of course, that's been covered with layers of conditioning. And so Zazen, this practice of silent sitting, is about uncovering those layers or sort of sifting down through the layers to see what's there without all of that conditioning. What is before conditioning? As one of the koans says, what is our original face before our parents were born? And so, in this case, back to the koan, Yun-Yang asks Dawu, how does the Bodhisattva, Kuan Yin, use those many hands and eyes? Dawu answers, it's like someone in the middle of the night reaching behind her head for a pillow. So just really quickly, these two, these two characters, Yun-Yang and Dawu, were, uh, were told were brother monks. We don't know if they were literally brothers. They could have been but they certainly spent many, many years together training. One of them was a natural and took to practice very early and had a big experience, an opening experience. And, and um, the other brother um, struggled and didn't have an opening for 40 years. Keep that in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but once he did, his practice was very deep. His teaching was very deep. And these were the predecessors to the founders of the Soto School of Zen in China. And so one asks the other, 
how does the Bodhisattva use those hands and eyes? And the answer is, it's like someone reaching out behind their head in the middle of the night for a pillow. You know, it's such a beautiful image and something very relatable, I think. Perhaps the pillows slipped away, you know, fallen off the side of the bed, perhaps. And the hand simply reaches back. Simply reaches back. Directly. Without planning. Without thinking about how am I going to reach back and get that pillow? What's the best way to get that pillow? No goals of helping the head. No thought about, am I going to do it right? Am I going to help my head the right way or the wrong way? Am I going to screw this up? The hand, the body just knows what to do. So simple. This is the functioning of compassion. Simple, direct, alive. It leads to the question of like, what is it that prevents us from responding that way all the time? From responding, not just to others, but to ourselves as well. And it usually, every time I examine this question, it comes down to the same thing, really. It's just thought, unnecessary thought. That of course weighs nothing, can't be brought out and shown can't be <clears throat> seen. And yet it derails so many people, such a powerful force. And yet it's nothing. Thought has no substance. But they intrude, you know. I, I wouldn't know what to do. I'm not sure if I'm going to be a help or harm here. Um, I'm not qualified. Somebody else will do it. I'm kind of busy. I've got things to do. I don't, I don't really deserve help myself. And so over time, we repeat these things, these messages, over and over again. The repetition. And they become institutionalized inside of us. I'm the type of person who. It's got to be this way or that way. The shoulds and should nots. Soon enough, they become almost unrecognizable, so woven into uh, the fabric of who we take ourselves to be that we just can't see things any differently. You know, okay, I was thinking about this and... Um, now, occasionally, some people here get annoyed with me for my answers to their questions about practice, the good questions that people ask, and they might not be as direct or as what you're looking for. I recognize that. But, you know, the, you, know, so, you, know you might ask, you know, what is, what is Zen about, or... That's the problem is we, we're, what we're looking for is answers, you know. What does Zen say? Zen says that this, you know. Teshin says this. Okay. And 
that becomes a kind of a crutch, right? another kind of attempt at institutionalizing, of making something solid, reified, understandable. And I get it. It makes sense. But this practice is about undermining that, not reinforcing it. Because when our go-to is all of our beliefs, we really lose, risk losing touch with what's in front of us now. Or who's in front of us now. Who's in front of us now. We can go to an answer rather than what's the situation that's called for. What does, does the situation call for? So compassion isn't found in a book or a law or a rule or an idea. It's about reaching out now to comfort the head. This is why we, we work on a koan as a practice now, not in Taisho, but as a practice when we work on a koan, the job of a student is to bring it to life in the doksan room, to come in, to bring it alive, whatever that might be. It's working against that process of calcification that happens when we begin to try to rely on philosophy or answers or dogma or what have you. And as we get older, by the way, I'm sure some of you are experiencing, we do begin to get calcified, <laughs> right? <laughs> Literally, <laughs> metaphorically. This is what our practices of inquiry is about, to keep the wisdom, the true wisdom, to keep, which means that it has to be relevant now. Like someone reaching out for a pillow in the night. Sometimes in this translation, in the translation of this koan, the word groping is used. It's like someone groping for a pillow in the middle of the night, which I really like fumbling for a pillow. And that's sometimes how our practice feels. Like we're fumbling, groping in the dark. How do I practice? Am I doing it right? And, you know. But I think it's important to fumble. Really. It's a very uncomfortable practice to fumble, to grope. To not understand, and I don't mean grope the way, you know, <laughs> the me too way, um, but struggling. That's so important to find our way in the night, in the night when it's dark. If we wait for when it's daytime, then it's easy. But then we wait. And if we wait, then we miss out. One master said, if it's not you, then who? If it's not now, then when? Maybe that could sum up the whole Taisho. If not you, who? If not when? Or if not now, when? So in reply to Dao Wu's description of a person reaching out for a pillow, Yun Yang replies, I understand. Dao Wu asks, how is that that you understand? Yun Yang said, all over, 
the body, our hands and eyes. And so when we sit with this koan, this point of yin-yang that he's making is something that can be endlessly investigated. This all over the body, hands and eyes. What does it mean when he says all over the body, our hands and eyes? Like we could ask, what is our body? From a conventional perspective, of course, our body is our body. Your body is your body. I am not you, and you're not me. There's boundaries. Important. But as we practice, especially in longer retreats in Sashin, we might begin to get glimpses, insights, that those hard lines, my body, your body, are not so hard. They're not so defined. And one of the early cases that we encounter in our formal koan training is simply asks, how does your hand compare to the Buddha's hand? How does your hand compare to the Buddha's hand? Is it the same? Is it different? Is it neither the same nor different? Dogen said about his own insight, Master Dogen said, I came to realize clearly that the mind, which includes the body, remember, the mind is not other than the mountains, rivers, and the great white earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So we might have insights like that. We also might have insights like, yeah, I get it. This hand, here, this arm, here. This leg is the whole thing, the whole universe in this leg. So these insights, they come. But at other times, it might be just staying with the question, right? Staying with the question instead of having answers. What is the body? What am I? And these questions are important because they just hold us. It's important to be held in a question without going to an answer. Because the thing is that a question is much more interesting than an answer. It's, it's nice to stay. It's uncomfortable. But at some point, it just becomes nice to stay in the question. All over the hands, all over the body, your hands and eyes. Sometimes it's, we just appreciate the miracle of our bodies. Our hands, our eyes. They're just, I mean, they're just incredible, right? I mean, you couldn't design something like this, right? All of our robotics are designed on this, right? But it's just a complete miracle. At other times, it might be, my body's failing me. I mean, you know, it's, it's no longer something that just happens to those old people. And, and then compassion comes out of that. 
because we can now relate. It's no longer somebody else just complaining about themselves. Now it's us. And hopefully that stimulates a little compassion. You can see how endless this investigation of this phrase can be. So his brother monk says, that's very well expressed, but it's only eight-tenths of the answer. You could say, in other words, it's, that's good, it's a good answer, but it, you only get 80%. You get a B minus. <laughs> right. B minus, which for me in high school would have been great. <laughs> I would have settled for a C a lot of times. So, of course, we all want the A, or at least <laughs> most of us want the A, not the B minus. But can it ever really be fully expressed? Is it possible to express something 100%? Is it? No. But do we stop trying? No. Will humanity ever solve all of its problems? Will we finally get across the finish line? No. But should we keep trying? Yes. What else is there to do but try? That's the thing. What else is there in this world to try? To try. Whatever that is for you. I remember working as a young guy at the Zen Center in Rochester. I was building a, this long fence, digging all the post holes. And Richard, you may have seen it. And one of the teachers asked me how I was doing with it, and it was a hot day and sweating, and, and I don't remember exactly what I spread, I expressed in some way that how tired I was. And he looked at me and he said, what else do you think your body's for? <laughs> oh. <laughs> what else is our life for? It's to fully express itself. Don't hold back. The trying itself is a complete expression of your life, not the result. So Yun-Yan says, after him saying, well, it's, that's only 80%, Yun-Yan said, well, how would you express it then, elder brother? <laughs> and Dao said, throughout the body, our hands and eyes. So remember, his first response was, all over the body, our hands and eyes. And this other responses throughout the body, hands and eyes. Now, it's easy to kind of compare these two statements, to think of these two as in some sort of competition, right? Which of these brothers is right? Is it throughout the hands, of, throughout the body, or is it all over the body? What the hell's the difference anyway? <laughs> like, oh... You think I've only got 80%. Let's see how you're going to express it with 100%. But this, that misses it. Each one of their responses is complete at 80%. Not to compare. That's, that's what these colons elicit. They elicit inside of you the comparing mind, the mind that gets drawn into, am I doing it right? Is he right? Is she right? Am I right? Am I wrong? 
This is not what's going on between these two. Each response, each dialogue, each thing, each moment is an expression full, complete, just as it is. And the practice is learning to rest in that completeness at 80%.